Hello and welcome to the Lancet Podcast. Richard Lane with you here on Friday, May the 24th. This week, we're focusing on a new clinical series about blood transfusion. Earlier, I spoke to the guru behind the series, Professor Lawrence Tim Goodnow from Stanford University in the United States. Professor Goodnow, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. You're very much the guru behind this three-part clinical series on transfusion medicine. You're one of the authors on two of the three papers. To start off with some history, everyone knows about blood transfusion, but how long has it been going on? What's the history here? Thanks, Richard. It's a pleasure being here with you this morning. Blood transfusions were first identified to be a value by a British obstetrician in 1818 when he performed the first successful blood transfusion of human blood for the treatment of a woman undergoing postpartum hemorrhage in which he used the patient's husband as a donor and extracted four ounces of blood from his arm to transfuse into his wife. For the ensuing years, 1825 to 1830, Dr. Blundell performed about uh, 10 transfusions, five of which were described to be beneficial, and he actually published his results. So that was the uh, beginning of the knowledge that a blood transfusion could be life-saving. In 1901, Carl Ansteiner identified that there were major blood groups, blood group O, A, B, and AB, that needed to be matched between patients. And then in 1906, it was first identified that you actually need to cross-match the blood ahead of time where a small amount of red blood cells from the unit is incubated with a small amount of serum from the patient to make sure there's no clumping or agglutination. And when there is none, that means that the blood is immunologically compatible with the patient, and that's what we call blood type and cross-match. So it was only just a little over 100 years ago that we first recognized that blood needed to be cross-matched, and in addition to its potential life-saving properties, there is a risk to blood transfusion with immunologic incompatibility. And Yes, you just mentioned the risks there. Can you just go on and clarify what all those risks are? When did we first become aware of the risk? Was it in the 1980s with the advent of HIV AIDS? It predates it a little bit. So in addition to the concept that you can have a transfusion reaction, in the 1960s and 70s, we became aware that viral hepatitis could be transmitted by blood, and it became a big problem in patients undergoing coronary artery bypass surgery, particularly in the 1970s, as that procedure became widespread. Those patients required a lot of blood transfusion support. Cardiothoracic surgeons, such as Toby Cosgrove, who was a young cardiothoracic surgeon at that time and today is the chief executive operator of the Cleveland Clinic, he recognized uh, back in the 1970s that the most morbid part of his bypass surgery program was the six-month post-operative checkup when his patients would come back to him to be yellow. Everybody recognized that that was uh, the blood uh, transmission of what we then called non-A, non-B hepatitis, which we now know is hepatitis C. So coincident with the early 1980s with the sad realization that HIV was transmissible by blood, that galvanized the whole field to identify that virus and come up with a test for it. And then also shortly thereafter, the hepatitis C virus was identified as being responsible for almost all the cases of what we used to call non-A, non-B hepatitis. So it was that era in the late 1970s and early 1980s that identified for patients in particular, along with their physicians 
and other members of the healthcare community that a blood transfusion carried a considerable risk of transmission of, of pathogens, bloodborne pathogens. Thanks very much. Now, the series very much points to the importance of this concept of blood management. What is meant by this term? Well, the concept of blood management, which has been with us since the uh, early 2000s, is the recognition that blood uh, does carry risks, which we can quantitate and estimate for our patients. And part of the difficulty of having a conversation with the patients for informed consent is trying to articulate the potential benefit of a blood transfusion. It's much more difficult to quantitate that, but this conversation is very much necessary with the patient so they can consent in advance for the possibility of a blood transfusion. And part of blood management is the reassurance to the patient that when we transfuse, it'll be because we believe the benefit outweighs the risks. And our goal in blood management is the appropriate use of blood and blood components, which would be red blood cells, plasma, or platelets. The goal of appropriate use and minimizing their use, the concept that less is more. You give enough for the benefit to, in an effort to minimize the risk. And this is a very patient-friendly concept. I've never yet met a patient as a hematologist who is enthusiastic about a blood transfusion. This concept of being conservative about blood or blood conservation or blood management, again, is not new. Uh, it goes back to the 1970s when Dr. Cosgrove and other leaders in the field of cardiothoracic surgery and anesthesia developed strategies to minimize blood use. And this concept was on a three-legged stool based on the principles of blood risks, which we've been talking about, but also conservation of the blood inventory. It's a precious resource. Why do we have a blood inventory? It's for people who cannot plan ahead, such as non-elective surgery, trauma, postpartum hemorrhage, patients with malignant disease such as leukemia or cancer. For those patients who can't plan ahead, that's why we have a blood inventory. For everybody else, if you plan in advance, you can uh, achieve this goal of minimizing blood transfusions unless they're absolutely necessary by doing other things such as identifying anemia and treating anemia with uh, other modalities such as iron if the patient's iron deficient or vitamin B12 or folate, for example. And that brings us neatly into the three Lancet series papers. You've already just touched on some of those issues, but perhaps you could just give our listeners, as we want them to, to read the series online or in the print issue, a flavour of the series. There are three papers. The first one you're an author of, dealing with blood utilisation. The second paper, again, which you're an author discussing alternatives to blood transfusion. And finally, the third paper looking at the infantry management of blood supply. The uh, first review in blood utilization summarizes where we've uh, come with respect to the concept of patient blood management. And that is an updated concept beyond blood management, uh, where for the patient blood management, it's a very proactive interventional approach. The principles of blood conservation applied patient by patient so, for example, for an elective surgical patient who is scheduled in advance to detect and evaluate and identify the possibility that the patient might have anemia and uh, to intervene and treat the anemia and get the blood count up so that subsequently for any given amount of blood loss, there is less likely a blood transfusion. So patient blood management is what we uh, review in the first manuscript. Blood transfusions or blood utilization is a central part of that. The concept that, uh, and there are now four good prospective randomized clinical trials in, in the literature. There are four studies that have demonstrated that everything else being equal, a more restrictive transfusion practice 
is equally beneficial to patients than a more aggressive or liberal, if you will, transfusion practice. So this concept that reacting to a laboratory value and attempting to correct it with a blood transfusion, to treat anemia with a blood transfusion, has been turned on its head where we ask ourselves at the bedside, are there other ways to treat anemia besides a blood transfusion? And that is what we address in the second manuscript on alternatives to blood where we review the um, options, including such things as the patient's own blood, what we call autologous blood, which could be pre-deposited in the blood bank in advance of elective surgery by the patient. That's one example of autologous blood. Another example is if the blood is salvaged during surgery, during blood loss, into a machine and washed and returned back to the patient, cell salvage and reinfusion, a very common clinical practice in patients undergoing surgical procedures with substantial blood loss. So the the idea of autologous blood procurement, the concept of pharmacologic strategies such as iron and erythropoietic stimulating agents and agents to uh, promote hemostasis or promote blood clotting during hemorrhage. That is the purpose of the uh, second uh, manuscript to review uh, these alternatives to blood transfusion. And then the third review is to give an overview in challenges in the management of the blood supply of the blood inventory. We are an aging population in the developed countries and with increased complex healthcare requirements and associated with an aging population, the amount of blood that's been collected and transfused has been rather relentlessly increasing over the last 10 to 15 years with the most recent exception, gratifyingly enough, a small decrease uh, in the United States and in the UK, it's been um, observed that blood, blood utilization is actually going down thanks to the uh, programs in blood management and patient blood management we've been describing. And so for developed countries, there's been an easing in the pressure on the blood inventory at this time, and we feel pretty good about that. But we always want to make sure that we match the uh, healthcare needs with the donor population, donating this uh, blood as a gift for the proper um, procurement and inventorying and testing and uh, supply of the blood. And so that's reviewed in the uh, third manuscript in The Lancet. Along with this, of course, are obviously long ongoing challenges in the developing countries for a safe and effective blood supply in countries that uh, don't have the systems and the financial ability to manage blood inventories the way the more developed countries can. Thanks, and that's interesting. Can you just give a little bit more detail there? Because clearly the issues concerning blood management and safe transfusion and blood donation are very different in resource-poor settings compared with developed countries in the world. In the developing countries, in some areas, there is a problem with pathogens being endemic in the blood supply. The HIV virus, for example, in some countries in in Africa, you can't identify, based on the demographics of the donors being presented, people who are at risk for uh, transmitting pathogens. In In the developed countries, we have a long list of questions on the donor questionnaire about risk factors. If they answer yes to those, we preclude them from donating with the concept that the safest blood is the blood, uh, a risky unit that was never donated. You shouldn't test a unit that should never have been donated. That, that is difficult to do in some developing countries because there is the HIV virus is endemic throughout the population and you, you can't identify by a careful questioning of the potential donor who might be at risk for that 
that, that HIV virus or another pathogen and who isn't. And it's a problem in terms of screening donors in these developing countries. And then the infrastructure for testing the blood may, may not be adequate because of uh, financial constraints and the logistics of um, inventorying blood. Blood needs to be refrigerated. So the infrastructure for storing blood and testing blood may, may not be in place. And so other uh, more imaginative solutions to this would be, for example, again, the patient serving as their own blood bank where the patient donates their own blood before surgery. But that also has a cost. That also requires you know, su- uh, inventorying and supplying uh, refrigerators and so forth. So there are a number of challenges in developing countries on the establishment and the maintenance of a, of a blood supply that is safe and uh, available for healthcare needs. Well, it's a fascinating series. So Professor Lawrence Tim Goodnow on the line from Stanford University in the States. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. My pleasure, Richard. Thank you. Thanks for listening. See you next time.